We're, we're going to start the message this morning with a little humor. I was scrolling through Facebook this morning and came across the picture posted from a good friend of mine down in the Raleigh area. And here's the picture. It's a dog looking at a floor full of torn up paper. Here's the comment on the post. So we came home from our kid's house to find our dog, Fossey, had devoured the Word of God. Next thing I know, he might start preaching. And I commented to the post, I'm going to use that this morning. Just because, number one, I thought it was really funny <laughs> that a dog devoured the Word of God, literally. And then I thought, man, that's something we do every Sunday. That's my goal, is that we want to be like Fossey. Like, we want to maybe even get wristbands, be like Fossey. We want to devour God's Word each Sunday, and really every day, but let's just take a Sunday morning. And so this morning, we're going to do, we're going to be like Fossey. That's my transition, by the way. I was trying to come up with something really brilliant and witty. So be like Fossey was my transition. I just wanted you to see this and the idea that our goal is to devour God's Word. It just so happens today that we are going to read a lot of Bible. So if you don't like Bible, this won't be your service. This really won't be your message. So hopefully you'll enjoy being like Fosse, devouring some of God's Word with, with me as we take a journey through maybe a familiar passage of Scripture, but hopefully you will see something that you have never seen before in our passage of Scripture today. It's got passion, murder, a little dancing. It's got all the, all the makings of a good movie all here in our passage, but I hopefully we'll see something that we have never seen before. To get there, I want to take a journey through two other movies. They are books, but we'll take the movie part. Uh, and I want to pull two quotes from these movies, famous movies, stories you probably know, because I think they have something to teach us today. Every great author, every great author, every great filmmaker usually puts a clue at the front of the movie or somewhere in the middle about where the end of the story is going where we're going to end up as the audience, as maybe the readers or the viewers. And I had these two movies in mind as I started to think about great, great filmmakers, great screenwriters, great authors. The first, J.R.R. Tolkien. And there's a wonderful quote in the first book of The Lord of the Rings or in the first movie. Here's the quote. Frodo says, It's a pity Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. And then Gandalf says back to Frodo, pity? It's a pity that he stay, that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play in it. For good or evil, before this is over, the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. That's right at the start of the story. Yet, if you know this story, you know that J.R.R. Tolkien here has given us a clue as the readers or the viewers of where this story is going, because Gollum will play a very important role in this story. The other great author or screenwriter that comes to mind is J.K. Rowling. And in the first Harry Potter book, we have Dumbledore, the great wise wizard, saying something to Harry that is a very big clue 
to the end of the story. Here's what Dumbledore says to Harry. Your mother died to save you. If there is one thing Voldemort, that's the evil wizard, cannot understand, it is love. Love as powerful as your mother's for he for you mother's uh, as sorry love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark to have been loved so deeply even though the person who loved you loved us is gone will give us some protection forever. If you know the end of the story of Harry Potter, you know that what Rawlings has done here is give us, the viewer, the reader, a clue to the way the story's going to end. That has, that has bearing on our passage today. This story, with so much passion and excitement, is placed in the Gospel of Mark in such a way as to give the reader, you and me, a clue about the bigger story in which it sits. Let's take a look. Let's read this very juicy story out of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6, we pick up with verse 13. Where we've been in the story is that Jesus has gone to his hometown. He's been rejected. Then he sent out his disciples two by two. And it looks like the influence of Jesus is going forward in some very positive ways. Then we hit verse 14. We pick up there. King Herod heard about this. That is, he heard about all the good things that's happening in the name of Jesus. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Now, some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. Still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. You picking that up? He married his brother's wife? Okay. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Verse 19, so Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths, and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, when you hear that story, there are all kinds of juicy things going on 
in those few verses. We have a party. We have a girl dancing. We have a king being pleased by the dancing. We have dinner guests. And now you, with your imagination, could fill in all the gaps. And we could study all of those details and bring away some life application. I'm sure of it. Don't, don't go to big parties. Don't dance like that in front of people like that. Don't promise things you can't deliver. There are all kinds of things we could say about that. But what intrigues me is why Mark puts this story at this point in the story. Mark 1, 14, he records this about the John the Baptist. After John was in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Mark 1, verse 14. Mark tells the reader that John has been imprisoned. Why not include this story right there? Why not insert the details of his beheading right up front? Give the reader a sense of what has happened Bookend John the Baptist and move on with Jesus. Why at this point, why right after the disciples have gone out two by two with great influence, does Mark now insert the beheading of John the Baptist? He has an eye to the reader. Mark has an eye to the reader. Mark has not thrown together the story in such a way that he just hopes it all makes sense. Just like J.R.R. Tolkien did not throw together the Lord of the Rings and just hope that, that, that it would all make sense in the end. Harry Potter was not just thrown against a wall with a whim that it might make sense. Mark has an eye to me and you. And he wants this story at this place in the narrative to tell us something. Let me skip ahead to where I think, to why I think, Mark puts the story right here in the gospel. Here, here's how I would say it. Mark inserts this story in chapter 6 as a clue about where the life of Jesus is headed, to the cross. I think Mark puts the story right here to tell us, to give us a clue about the end of the story, that this story about Jesus is leading to the cross. Here we have the man who launched the ministry of Jesus, a man you would expect, right, to be in the hallways of power. You would expect that John would have been close to Jesus, that John the Baptist, the man who himself baptized Jesus, would be brought into this new kingdom of God that Jesus is now inaugurating. Rome would be kicked out. John the Baptist put at the throne with Jesus, and he would be a man of great power. That's the way that story would normally go in our world. If you are a benefactor, or you are someone who helps someone else get into power, usually they are returning the favor. That's how politics works. And here, as the two by two, as the disciples go out with great influence, with the hope that now the kingdom of God is right on the heels, that Rome is right on the cusp of being overrun, now, right as the story seems hopeful, you get a story about Jesus' second, second, second in command being beheaded unjustly. That story should stop us right in our tracks. Mark is getting our attention. He's foreshadowing where the story's going. If this would happen to the herald of the kingdom of God, guess what will happen to the Messiah himself? It will lead 
to his unjust death as well. Now, I see a couple things going on. As I read the whole Gospel of Mark, as I read the whole story, I see connections between these two. I see the, the literary connections. I see literary connections first between the deaths of John the Baptist and Jesus. I want you just to pull a couple of those to bring forward and to put in front of you. In Mark chapter 6, verse 26, look at how Mark tells the story. The king was greatly distressed. This is King Herod, greatly distressed, doesn't want to kill John the Baptist, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did, he did not want to refuse her. So immediately he sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. King Herod himself was quite somewhat partial to John the Baptist, but to please those around him, he went ahead with the killing. Now, if there is some connection between the death of John the Baptist and the death of Jesus, if this is some foreshadowing, if there are clues being placed here in Mark 6, we might see a connection, a literary connection between the way this death happens and the death of Jesus. And it so happens that another ruler faces the same struggle with Jesus. Mark chapter 15, verse 15, look at how Mark tells the story of Pilate's decision. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The same details of the story are happening with Pilate as happened with Herod. Mark, a careful writer, doesn't want us, the readers, to miss this connection. He tells the story in such a way to lay just enough crumbs, just enough clues to tie these two together. Let me give you another connection I see. Back in Mark chapter 6, verse 21, finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. An opportune time. There was an opportunity to finally take out John the Baptist. And Herodias had been looking for it for quite a while. And now an opportune time came. Opportunity is the key to the death. Take a look at how Mark records the story of Jesus' betrayal. Mark 14, 11. So they were delighted. This is the Pharisees. They were delighted to hear this. This is when Judas goes to get the money to make a deal to betray Jesus. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he, that's Judas, watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And you know that an opportune time came right after the Last Supper. Mark, the writer, wants us, the readers, to see that the way, the way that this story will end will be the same way John the Baptist met his end. That's the way the story, that's the trajectory of the narrative. Now, there's a, another thing that I see going on. Not only do I see literary connections between these two deaths, which tip us off to the end of the story, just like Tolkien and Rawlings does in their stories, but here begins a thematic shift to the cross. See, up to this point, up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, we've got a lot of stories about miracles. We've got a lot of stories about uh, um, exorcisms. We have Jesus stopping, calming storms. But now we will see a thematic shift 
where the cross will become more prominent. That is, that it will become more and more clear how the story will end. And what I want to do now is read several words of Jesus. Because with the death of John the Baptist, this thematic turn begins to happen. So from chapter 6 forward until we actually get to the crucifixion, the cross is going to start coming up over and over again. And repetition will be a tool Mark uses to get our attention. And it will be Jesus speaking to his disciples about the end of the story. So take a look. Three times Jesus says something about the cross, and it all begins to happen post chapter 6, the beheading of John the Baptist. Take a look. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, roll into Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 32. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. Because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Then we roll into chapter 10. And we look at verses 32 through 34. Here's what Jesus says. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished. While those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Then they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Over and over again, Jesus tells his disciples that the kingdom of God they are expecting is not and will not come. His kingdom will be a very different order. And the way you get to true life through Jesus is very different than the way of the world. You don't buy a bunch of machine guns and take out the Romans. There's another way. You don't build big mansions. There's another way. It is not going to be the way of Herod. It will be a different way. Let me say it this way. The way to true life is not through a castle, but a cross. Over and over again, beginning with the beheading of John the Baptist, Mark, the author, wants to make very clear to us, the readers, that the way of the kingdom of God will not be the way of a castle. It will be the way of a beheading or a cross. And so John the Baptist, his death foreshadows the coming death of the Messiah, a different kind of Messiah than anyone was expecting. Now, the disciples, they didn't understand any of this. Every time Jesus tells them, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed, then I'm coming back to life. That's the way this kingdom's going to work. Every time he said it, they tried to make a power play and, have, and gain access to the highest levels of what they thought would be his new government. They didn't get it. They completely missed it. At one point... At one point, Jesus made it very clear that the way to life would be through a cross. He said it like this, 
Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 37, then he called the crowd along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? No one, no one living in the kingdom of this world talks like that. The way you gain life in this world is you go get your degree, you go make a lot of money, you buy a nice house, and you gain and acquire a lot of power. That's how you make it in this world. You power up, and you have influence, and you build a really big network. No one talks about losing your life to gain it. This makes no sense. And so the disciples assumed what we would assume if we weren't Christians hearing him for the first time. This must be cryptic for how to gain power through the kingdom. At one point, John and James come to him in secret after he says something like this, and they say, hey, Jesus, we'll cut you a deal. What if we let you make us your top dogs in the kingdom? We're going to let you do that. Can we do that? And Jesus looks at them and says, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. You don't understand what I've just said. You don't understand the nature of the kingdom. You're trying to play politics like the, like the, like the kingdom of this world. You're trying to be like Herod, not John the Baptist. And he says to James and John, after they make this pitch, he uses, he uses this as a teaching moment, Mark 10, second part of 42, 45, he says to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be, your slave, must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse 45 is foreshadowed when John the Baptist gets his head cut off. That the way of this kingdom will be the way of death. It will be the way of denial and sacrifice. And so what you have in the Gospel of Mark, beginning, beginning with this pivot in chapter 6, with the beheading of John the Baptist, is a clear distinction between Herod and the kingdom of this world, and John the Baptist in the kingdom of God. And you're going to see that tension continue to play after the pivot that has happened with the beheading of John the Baptist. Let me just lay it out. Let's just put that in a list. I like lists. Look at how this looks when you put it in a list. Herod in the kingdom of this world value being served, being first, luxury, being better than others, and power. Honestly, that's kind of where I fall. I don't mind a little luxury. And if you ever want to bring me food to my house for free, I don't mind a little luxury. I'll take it. But John the Baptist in the kingdom of God value serving, being last, sacrifice, humility, truth. We are trained very well to live under the reign of Herod. The kingdom of God reverses all of it in the example of John the Baptist. A man that had, could have tickled the ears of Herod, 
could have come up with some theological justification for him getting all the pleasure he wanted. Yet he spoke truth and led to his death. And that's exactly what happens with Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus calls and tells his disciples to do. So what does this mean for you and me? Like, how does all of this, how does all this land in our lives? What does this mean for you in your living room? Here's, here's the question we want to ask. Which kingdom are you trying to live in? What kingdom are you trying to live in? Now, I don't mean that you can live in either one of, the, uh, one of these exclusively, especially as a follower of Jesus. I doubt that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are full in on the kingdom of, God, uh, on the kingdom of this world. I imagine you have some tension. Hence, consider what you're trying to live in. Consider where, consider where you put your efforts, how, how you spend your time. Really think about your desires and what life looks, for, looks like for you in the way you actually live. So how are, what kingdom are you trying to live in, if you're honest? Now, take that and roll it into some questions. Let's just move that into some questions for your life. Are, you, are we building worldly castles? Now, I don't mean literally a castle, nor am I making reference to your beach house or your, your playtime on the sand. I mean, are you trying to build a worldly network of power? Are you trying to get ahead in this world and make it better than others in a way that hurts those you're stepping on? Are you trying to build your 401k so big that you don't really need God in the retirement? Are you making sure your savings account looks comfortable enough that in the end you don't really need God in a time of distress? This is the way worldly castles start to look for us. So I don't know what that, how that hits you individually, but you've got to pull some application for you. So whatever your castle is. Are we training to be first and better than others? Now listen, I don't have any problem with winning on the sports field. As you know, our church team were runner-up. We were runner-up. That means we beat some teams. We had no problem being first. I had no problem getting a hit, running to first. I had no problem batting just, af just after or just before Mark Sneed, who bats left-handed, who pulls the ball, who has the potential to really hurt you <laughs> so that we could win. I got no problem with that. I'll sacrifice my body for that. No problem winning. But what happens? What happens when winning steps on top of people? What happens when you hurt other people in the process of being better than them? Now, there are all kinds of ways that we do this, so I'm not going to walk through a list of ways we do it. Very few of us, very few of us are explicit in the way we hurt people. We usually don't walk up to people and throat punch them to tell them we don't like them. We have better ways of doing that. We have more subtle ways of doing that. We have facial expressions and we have sighs. We have ways of getting at people that are indirect. But in the end, we're trying to be first and make sure they know we're better than them. This is just another version of the kingdom of Herod. 
And are we using our power to get ahead or put people down even subtly? Really want to take those questions into your real life and think about that. Now, take that and just reverse it. Are we picking up our crosses daily? Are we training to be last? You ever heard that? Who talks like that? Who trains to be last? No one trains to be last unless you're Jesus. And are we serving others using our power to build them up? I had a friend, I have a close friend of mine, another pastor friend. I was sharing with him uh, this, my insights on this passage. And I thought I was bringing some profound truth as I waxed eloquent about this passage and all of my insights. And while we were on the phone, he stopped me and said, okay, let me ask you a question. I like everything you just said, but how will you, Jason, use your power for good and not evil? What he did was ask me a question that made me Herod. Herod had a lot of power. And in the end, he used it for his own benefit. And what my friend did as we continued to talk was he He helped me get to a point where I realized that even as a parent, I hold a lot of power. And how am I using that power? How do I use my facial expressions? And how do I use my hands? How do I use my voice? How do I use the volume of my voice? How do I use my words? How do I use my body at home? All of us hold some power because you have someone in your life that you're close with. Someone in your life you talk with, someone that listens. You have power, so how do you use it? And man, he got under my skin or stepped on my toes, made me mad. There are a lot of other ways to describe what he did in asking me that question. But he helped me realize how, how how much I am like Herod and how I might have been right alongside Herod encouraging the beheading of John the Baptist, especially with a little drink, a little dancing, that would have felt just fine to get rid of an enemy. But my, that's not the way of Jesus. So let's take that application and bring it down to a next step. Now, you can do this today. You can plan it for Monday or Tuesday. But it's something you can do starting today. Here's the next step. Do something nice for someone without strings attached that cost you something, that cost you something. Don't just do something nice that doesn't cost you anything. That's just being nice. Do something that will train you to be last. That will train you in the way of John the Baptist and Jesus and the kingdom of God. So let me give you some suggestions. Here are some suggestions. These are just random. Maybe run an errand for your best friend, even though you don't have any time. Or maybe do laundry for your family, although it's boring. Or maybe say sorry to your spouse, although it costs you your pride. Now listen, I closed my eyes, maybe, kind of. Maybe I'm seeing some spouses look at each other. If you thought that was for you, it was. It was. (laughs) Plan that one. Just for you. You're thinking the Holy Spirit speaking. He is. Right? To you. Okay? These are just some ideas, really. These are just some ideas that you can take all of this and make it it something that applies to your life. This is just the way we train in the kingdom of God.
When John the Baptist, when the story of John the Baptist, his death was placed in the Gospel of Mark, it was to foreshadow the way of the cross. And it was to tip us off that the way to life was through denying ourselves. So we want to train in that direction. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for brilliant authors like Mark. And thank you for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to place it right here in this gospel. And as we, as a church, continue to walk through this story, would you soften our hearts to hear the message of Jesus and to be willing to walk in the kingdom, training to be last, serving others, being for the good of those around us. We pray that in the name of Jesus, who not only died on a cross for the sins of the world, but rose from the grave and destroyed death. We pray in his name.